Time for swordplay. Alex, a Yale professor and computer scientist, has concluded that he now rejects Darwinism and thinks intelligent design is a compelling argument. To which the Darwinist replied, So what if this one guy has a deviation from the consensus? I mean, what are the odds that this mutated perspective will actually be inherited within the academic population within an impossibly short amount of time so as to evolve academia from a view of non-design to design? What are the odds? Oh, wait. Oh, wait a minute. Huh. Hold on a second. Yeah, that old... Wait. <laughs> hey, this is Swordplay. <laughs> we are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. My name is Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, Joel chapter 3. That's right, and we have a lot to cover today, Nick, so let's jump right into Joel chapter 3, starting in verse 1. So, Joel here talks about in those days at that time in verse 1 of Joel 3. And we just wrapped up the end of Joel 2, which is quoted at length in Acts chapter 2. So are these verses in chapter 3, are these following verses about events that happen after Acts chapter 2? Yeah, and I think, (laughs) so my answer, Nick, and your answer are actually going to be the fork in the road from which we approach the rest of chapter 3. So wow, that this happens early. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this, this is, and it's that's just the way the text is laid out. You kind of have to pick your direction that you're going to go. So, like you said, as we know, that Peter uses Joel two twenty eight through thirty two to speak of the foretold events that are now unfolding before him and his audience in Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost. Then, to me, it seems reasonable to take the very next verse. Chapter 3, verse 1, which says, In those days and at that time, as something that would occur in the same era or age that the pouring out of the Spirit has ushered in. So that's the perspective I'm going to take and continue to follow. Uh, Nick, what do you say? Yeah, um, I hear what you're saying. The the perspective that I'm going to track with, on the other hand, is uh, I come from a pre-exilic date for the book of Joel, so before the exile into Babylon, that's when I think Joel prophesied this. And therefore, I'm persuaded this had to have meaning for the original audience, for them, and what what do you get after bad stuff happens? And so the phrase here in verse 1, in those days and at that time, uh, these prophetic phrases are not so much uh, chronology as it pertains to post-Acts 2. Uh, it's not so much a historical sequence that's emphasized, but just the restoration of the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem um, that are, are yet to come uh, following the exile. And so what's interesting is another phrase that's used in verse 1 here is uh, God says, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Restore the fortunes is a phrase that is used always, uh, just about every time. There's one um, exception that's in the book of Job. But every time that phrase, restore the fortunes, is used, it's a reference, in reference to a nation, it is 
uh, an idiom for restoration from captivity. And so that's, I think, what we're seeing here is the restoration of Judah after the exile. They're coming back to the land. The practice of slipping in messianic prophecies couched in restoration from captivity prophecies, that's a common thing also. Uh, One example is Jeremiah 33, uh, verse 11, verses 14 through 16. Uh, you have messianic prophecies that are woven into, hey, you're coming back to the land type prophecies. And in fact, we know that uh, verse 16 of Jeremiah 33 is intended for, well, at least the church age, because it's quoted in 1 Corinthians, or alluded to at least, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30. So that's the interpretive framework that I'm going to use here. And I'm going to try to stick as closely as I can to that, that that God is restoring the fortunes. Uh, Doesn't mean there's no application for us, that some stuff doesn't get carried across the bridge. I'll try to point that out as we go along as well. But that's where I'm at with that. So just a a quick recap, Nick. Uh, Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 27, um, when we covered that, you said that was about the return from captivity, right? Sure. But then 28 verses 32, you think that's about Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost, right? Right. And now chapter 3 verses 1 and following, we're back to the same thing we were talking about in verses 12 through 27, the return of captivity, Babylonian captivity. Yes. uh, However, I think, if memory serves me right, um, there were parts... I did try to do and show that some of the stuff in Joel 2 also connected to post-exile. And that's, again, that's the way that I'm reading Joel. Um, You get... uh, Post-exile or pre-exile? Well, so there's pre-exile stuff up to... mm, Where's the turn? Um, Verse 12, it says, Yet even now declares, Return to me with all your heart. Right, so that's the call. Verse 18 is the actual turn oh, okay. where God says, I'm, I'm jealous, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have pity on my people. And, and for, so, for, from your view, that happens during captivity, and it's about their return from captivity. Yeah, it's about coming back from the okay. exile. So 18 through 27 is about coming back from the exile, 28 through 32, the day at Pentecost. Um hundreds of years later, and then chapter 3, verse 1 and following, back to the exile that happens when they return from Babylon. But again, I, I, I could be mistaken, but I think there were parts in that chunk in 28 through 32 of chapter 2 where I think I pointed out there, were, there, was, there, were, there was connective tissue for the original audience as well. And Peter definitely quotes it and says, yeah, this is what's going to happen. But there, was, there is some significance, I think, Um, for the original audience. I see. Okay, well, I just wanted to clear that up so that we are clear from our differing perspectives here as we move forward. What do we have here then in verse 1? I I think it's going to really pop here with this next question, too, because uh, verse 1, God talked about, I'm going to restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. When did God restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem? Okay, so again, my perspective is I think these things are happening after the Spirit is poured out. Um, 
And so that's what I take those days at that time to mean in, in chapter 3, verse 1. So it's interesting. The Masoretic text, it mentions a restoration of fortunes, but the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint, they say that the captives will return. And I think that the one was probably synonymous with the other, kind of like you mentioned in your previous answer, Nick, about how uh, restoring of fortunes is another way of saying restoration from captivity. So the big question is, did the Jews actually feel like Israel had been restored after they had returned from Babylonian captivity? And that's a big question because that, again, is sort of a fork in the road that determines the trajectory you take not only for the rest of this chapter, but in many other portions of scripture. So I would say, no, uh, I don't think the Jews thought their return from Babylonian captivity was the same thing as the restoration of Israel, of God's kingdom. Because, first, it was just the southern kingdom that returned from Babylonian captivity. The northern tribes, they still remained in dispersion all over the nations ever since Assyria wiped them out in 722 BC. And so I think restoration from captivity and restoration of fortunes I think those were still expected by the Jews by the time Jesus shows up on the scene. And if you think about Peter's question to Jesus right before the ascension in Acts chapter 1, he says, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Acts chapter 1 verse 6. And Jesus doesn't say, what are you talking about, you idiot? That already happened after Babylon. (laughs) He actually says, it wasn't for Peter to know the times or epics fixed by the Father's authority. So it was a legitimate question, and Jesus doesn't blow it off. It's clear that Peter does not consider also what happens on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit is poured out. He doesn't consider that to be a completion of restoring all things either, because after Acts chapter 2, you have Acts chapter 3, verse 21, and he says that heaven must receive Jesus Christ until the restoration of all things that God spoke by the mouth of his prophets. And so he's still looking at prophetic writings from the Old Testament and looking at this restoration as not having yet been complete, even after the Spirit is poured out. So the restoration of all things, um, that includes the rebuilding of the house of David. And that's kind of interesting because that's from the book of uh, Amos, chapter 9, verses 11 through 12. And what does that, what does that mean? Well, in Acts chapter 15, uh, James, he says that, What that means is that uh, God is going to call in all of the Gentiles into God's kingdom. And that's what is being accomplished through all these Gentiles becoming Christians. So that was at the council to decide if Gentiles needed to keep the law of Moses or not. So if you think about that, you have faithful Israel who, um, as Jews who receive the Messiah, Jesus Christ, in the first century, becoming this group called the church, now also calling into itself Gentiles from every nation, that is very much in line with the Great Commission. I mean, that's that's our job, right? What is our job right now? The Great Commission. The Great Commission hasn't ended. It wasn't fulfilled in the first century. We are to make disciples of all, na- all the nations, and that is the restoration, the calling out of Gentiles into God's kingdom. And it's still underway. It's still happening right now. So when did God, the question is, when did God restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem? Uh, He has not restored it yet. It is underway. The restoration is 
um, being processed through the calling out of all uh, nations into God's kingdom so that we can become God's people. And Nick, you say? Well, as I mentioned uh, in the first question, the phrase restore the fortunes, uh, every time that phrase is used, except for one in the book of Job, it is, and it's been used in reference to the nation, it is restoration from captivity. And so we also keep in mind here that Yahweh through Joel is reminding his people of his covenantal promise in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 3, uh, that he would return them to the land that's a steady refrain throughout the prophets, Joel, uh, excuse me, Jeremiah 30 verse 3, Hosea 6 verse 11, Amos 9 and verse 14, captivity was coming, however, so also was restoration after the exile. And 70 years, uh, after 70 years in captivity, God did restore their fortunes. He brought his people back to the land, just as Jeremiah had predicted and as Daniel perceived from uh, Jeremiah's writings, Daniel 9 verse 2, uh, that's that's what happened. So <clears throat> that's my take. And that's kind of the, again, the fork in the road to the question within the question, did the Jews feel like Israel had been restored? And my answer was no. And your answer was, I guess it doesn't matter what they felt. You believe it says they were restored. Because they were, yeah. Right. Historically. So that's the key difference is returning from captivity, viewing that return as restoration or not as the restoration. Very interesting. So verse 2 talks about the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Uh, Alex, talk for a minute about what is the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Yes. So um, later on, I think this valley is going to be referenced as the Valley of Decision. In Hebrew, it means the Valley of Yahweh's Judgment. And we actually have no idea where this valley exists. Lots of people have tried to guess, but there is no geographical place that we can put our finger on and say, yeah, this is it. This is the Valley of Jehoshaphat. There's really just a bunch of um, loosely tied together theories. Many Jews, many Christians, even many Muslims throughout the centuries have tried to guess where the Valley of Jehoshaphat is or will be, but to no avail. And so I guess I'll guess too. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Here's the first clue from the book of Joel. The Valley of Decision, the Valley of Yahweh's Judgment, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, it has to be big enough for all of the nations to occupy and possibly to battle in. When we get to verse 12, we'll see there's this battle that takes place at the same time as the Day of Judgment. Uh, We probably should not be looking for a geographical place, but perhaps a cosmic place. And we talked about cosmic geography in chapter 2 concerning the enemy from the north and being dispersed to the Uh, first sea and the last sea. And I think that Yahweh will either create this valley on earth on the day of judgment, or that this valley already exists in the unseen realm. It's not a place that exists in the earthly realm, but it will be made manifest on the day of judgment. And so again, um, I'm going to mention this at the end of of the book, but I think we are stepping into apocalyptic literature here. And when we step into apocalyptic literature, Uh, symbols and ciphers reign supreme. They are the norm. So that's what I'm trying to look beyond the uh, earthly description here, because I don't think we're going to find an earthly place located as Jehoshaphat. What do you think, Nick? Uh, No, you were uh, right on the money in terms of there being debate about the exact location 
At the same time, one thing that I found is that the Valley of Jehoshaphat is often identified with the Valley of Jezreel. Jezreel was a city that had played a tragic role in the history of Israel and Judah because it was in Jezreel that the apostasy under Ahab and, of course, his lovely wife, the queen, Jezebel, their apostasy came to its frightening conclusion in Jezreel. It was in Jezreel that Jezebel was hurled from the window of her palace and her body was eaten by dogs on the streets of Jezreel. And so I think out of the cemetery of memories that the people had, there comes this reminder in uh, prophetic figurative language of how God had previously dealt with the people's sins. Only now... Yahweh is going to deal with the sins of the nations, in particular those who had oppressed his people through human trafficking and slavery. We're going to talk about that in verse 6. And so this valley of Jehoshaphat is a, a symbol of divine judgment, that God would take care of the bad guys who had oppressed his people. Also in verse 2, talks about how God, he says, I will enter into judgment with them, with the nations there. So when did God judge the nations, Alex? Yeah, there are going to be specific nations listed in Joel chapter 3. We're going to have Turei, Sidon, Philistia, the Greeks, Egypt, and Edom. Now, God judging the nations probably cannot be located in the events of the Babylonian Empire falling to the Medo-Persian Empire, or they to the Grecian Empire, or they to the Roman Empire. Ture, Sidon, Philistia, Egypt, these are all classical enemies of Israel and Yahweh. What would be communicated by judging all of these nations and then listing the specific uh, nations coming to an end? Well, uh, I think what would be communicated is the idea of this eternal battle between Yahweh and the gods of the nations. And that battle will one day come to an end. And that's what I think this chapter is about. You know, first Jesus prepared the messianic age by disarming the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. They ruled over the nations, but not anymore. Jesus took that debt certificate held by the nations, nailed it to the cross, and took away their right to rule over those nations, Colossians 2, 14 through 15. Now, his kingdom people, us Christians, the church, we are taking back all the people of the nations by making disciples. And that transfers them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, it's Colossians 1, 12 through 13. The nations, though, it says in Acts 17, God overlooked the times of ignorance when they were captive to the other gods, worshiping that which is not God. Well, Paul says, now that Jesus has come, they will be held accountable to judgment through the one whom God raised from the dead, Jesus Christ. It's Acts 17, 30 through 31. So why would this accountability be now and not before? It's because through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, rulership of all the nations, all authority in heaven and on earth has now been given to him. God has not judged the nations yet, not in the way described in Joel 3. That's the judgment that Paul is trying to tell the nations 
is coming in Acts 17. A nation can still be judged in temporality on earth, of course. We see that. Nations rise, nations fall. This happens throughout history. And yet there still remains a picture here in Joel 3 of a final judgment on all the nations. And that is the people of all those nations. And that's what Paul warns them about in Acts 17 and in other places we'll look at later. So, Nick, what's your take then? When did God judge the nations? Well, right you are, Alex. Nations are judged in time throughout history. That's exactly right. And so these nations, the Philistines, the Phoenicians, the Greeks, all of them, they are, they were judged in time through various means and methods utilized by Yahweh. And so uh, this valley imagery here, again, figurative language for Yahweh's judgment upon those who had oppressed his people. Judgment was coming upon them. God here assuring his people that uh, you don't have to worry about them. I'm going to take care of them. I got you guys. So so you uh, would say that even though the picture in Joel 3 is a judgment given to the nations all at once, sort of this big judgment upon all the nations, is to be, in your interpretation, the judgment that's actually just dished out one nation at a time throughout history? Um, so you do have, not just here but elsewhere, right, the picture of world judgment. And so the other thing to also keep in mind is, while it does say I'll gather all the nations, um, we get very specific names. We do get the Philistines, we get the Phoenicians, Tyreside, and you get the Greeks, you get the Egyptians, you get the Edomites. So so yes, I I take Joel 3 here to be... This, this judgment happens in time on these nations. But not all did. at once, just over time, one at a time. Right. Okay. Through various means and methods, yeah. I see. Well, what Verse else? Verse 3 talks about, um, yeah, these, the, stuff, the stuff that these people engaged in was terrible. They traded a boy for a prostitute, sold a girl for wine, have drunk it. So, verse 3, talk for a moment, Alex, about when did the nations prostitute... The children of Israel. Okay. Well, what is described in this verse is is terrible. Uh, human trafficking and forced prostitution is an evil that the world is still yet to be rid of. In the Septuagint, it's even worse. It says they gave the young children as prostitutes and little girls for wine. Treating life as a commodity to be traded and sold for sex and alcohol is the type of dark and twisted behavior which can only find its inspiration from the deepest pits of hell. It's interesting the way judgment against the nations is spoken of in this section. You know, in the previous verse, it says God enters into judgment against the nations, which is actually the language of bringing a lawsuit against someone, even though God is also the judge here. What we have then are the charges which God brings against the nations, scattering his people, dividing up his land, trafficking his children. I suppose one could say Assyria and Babylon did these things, but the next few verses, they don't put the blame on Assyria and Babylon. They put the blame on, again, Ture, Sidon, Philistia, and the Greeks. Uh, When did these things happen? Uh, We'll get there momentarily, but I don't actually see this as, again, happening historically at a point in place and time, but rather uh, it's part of the battle of darkness and light, the way in which the world treats 
those who belong to Yahweh. Um, yeah, I disagree. I think this did happen in history, and this will be a common refrain that I have as we talk about the um, specific historical events. Um, we don't really know. We can't really pinpoint precisely when these things happened, but they did, and I believe we know that they did because here it's saying that they did. Um, not only that, places like Obadiah 11, Nehemiah 3, verse 10, they also talk about um, the practice of casting lots for people and just the horrors that accompany um when you have these uh, national conflicts, uh, just just terrible stuff. And also the price, um, this is very cheap. They're, they're treating life as something very cheap. Um, and so, I, and I think all that did happen. But again, pinpointing precisely when that happened, we're, we're going to have difficulty with that. Verse 4, yeah, so now we get mention of Tyre, Sidon, the regions of Philistia. Uh, Alex, talk for a minute about why these nations are mentioned, why Tyre, Sidon, and Philistia are mentioned, and why they will be recompensed by God. Well, first, uh, God asks them a question. Are you going to recompense me? In other words, why do Tyre or Ture, uh, Sidon, and Philistia, why do they want revenge against Yahweh? With the backdrop of the gods of the nation's being in a battle of the ages against Yahweh, I think we can see at least on that level why these classic enemies of God's people would want to recompense God. You know, in times past, these nations were given over into Israel's hand, especially going back to the time of the conquest and then the judges and then the monarchy. But there were times within those periods of apostasy where Israel drifted away from their God Yahweh and then these nations were Yahweh's instrument of punishing Israel. From history, some commentators have noticed that the Phoenicians, that would be uh, when it mentions Ture and Sidon, the Phoenicians and the Philistine cities, they were really most allied politically during the middle of the 4th century BC. So even if we wanted to seek a historical explanation, which I don't, uh, <laughs> then it would place the accusations against these cities for things probably done in the mid-300s. But that would not answer the question as to why they would want to recompense Yahweh. You could say that these nations did these things at this time, but that does not reveal the motive. Why do they want revenge against Yahweh? That question, revenge against the God of Israel, that can only be answered by looking at the big picture and the long, drawn-out conflict between Yahweh and the gods of the nations, these powers of darkness. Any thoughts, Nick? So, Tyre, Sidon, Ture, Sidon, um, the Phoenicians, and Philistia, these, were, um, these are typical enemies of the nation of Israel. They were constantly, there was constantly national conflict uh, between them. Uh, they had apparently, along with the Edomites and the Egyptians and the Greeks, uh, done some stuff to the Israelites. And, and I believe that's why, and we've talked about some of the stuff, we'll talk about more of the stuff, I believe that's why they are emphasized here. And not just here, elsewhere you can find laments and prophecies against uh, Tyre, Sidon, and uh, uh, 
Edom and Egypt and all these different places uh, throughout the other prophets. And so I think, yeah, these, these were, uh, th- this constant conflict, I think that would explain why they want to try and hey, recompense God somehow if they could, the, the true God of Israel, Yahweh. They had con- they'd had uh, interaction with him before, and it always turned out bad. I think of uh, the example where the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, that was no good for them. So because of what they had done and because of uh, uh, their iniquity, uh, it was time for judgment, and that was what was coming upon them, and did come upon them historically. <clears throat> so we have these nations, um, Ture, Sidon, Philistia, Egypt, Greece, Edom. Uh, verse 5, when did these nations take gold and silver and treasure from God? As I mentioned before, it's, um, it's uncertain precisely what historical event Joel is referencing here when he is referencing these things having taken place in this verse. There is one theory uh, that the Philistines and the Phoenicians, um, they were on the scene and they joined in the plundering of the temple in 586 BC. Uh, Again, that's a theory, speculative, but um, they'd done something. They had done these things. We know they've done them because the Bible says they did, and so God is going to bring judgment upon them. And you say? Yeah. So here's where we get into (laughs) presuppositions. How we're approaching the text is really making the difference between our conclusions. Again, we're following two different trajectories. I have found no evidence that these nations uh, took gold and silver from uh, Jerusalem or Judah before the exile um the stealing of gold silver and treasure and uh the selling of the jews to the greeks that kind of goes together as we see in the next verse these are the things that they did but again you're not going to find in history a time in which you have all of these nations conspiring together ture sidon uh, philistia greeks egypt edom you're not going to find a point in history where these are all conspiring together to come and take gold and silver from Israel, from Jerusalem, and sell a bunch of Israelite children into slavery. It just isn't going to work out that way. That's why we're not going to be able to pinpoint any of these things. That's that's the perspective I'm bringing to the table. And so we can't say that we know they happened because the verse here says it if we don't have the we're kind of uh answering the the trying to word this in a way, <laughs> in a way it seems to me it seems a little circular and so we're saying the first means it because it means it when i think again this makes more sense to me from my perspective when we approach it as apocalyptic literature and Things of apocalyptic nature are going to come out more as we continue through the verses. So let's let's keep going then, Nick. Verse, well, but go ahead. One, yeah. one thing I do want to say is lack of evidence is not evidence of non-existence, right? I mean, that, that's that's essentially the case that skeptics have made about the Bible. Well, we don't have we don't have any evidence of this people group or that people group or what have you. And yet, eventually, like the Hittites, eventually we do find. 
the archaeologists dig a little deeper and they eventually find, oh yeah, there was this people group called the Hittites. Lack of evidence is not evidence of non-existence. It just means, okay, we can't pinpoint it. Yeah, but, but at the same time, God, God's word being truth, um, he says this stuff happened. Um, I believe it happened. Now, if you want to, and I think this is where you're going to go, if you want to uh, reinterpret in terms of a supernatural framework, yeah, go for it. But uh, I think it's valid to say this stuff happened because God through Joel is saying, yeah, this is what they did and they're guilty and now I'm going to punish them for it. Right. But I'm not saying we're lacking evidence for the existence of these nations or the existence of things like this happening in the world or in the ancient world. What I'm You're, saying is yep. we're, we're lacking evidence to show that these specific nations did these specific things right. to Israel at a specific point in time when taken into the, again, account of the trajectory we're each following here, what happens in the rest of this chapter to those nations. And again, you have to, your presuppositions, both you and I, I'm not saying you're making presuppositions and I'm not. What I'm sure. saying is that each of our presuppositions is determining the way we look at each of these verses. But I'm not saying it's invalid. I'm just pointing out the difference so that we know why we would come to different locations and why these things would not be self-evident. Fair enough. Does that make sense? Yep. Well, verse 6 then. Nick, when do you think the Jews were sold to the Greeks? Uh, So... Uh, it is the, uh, in a, and I, I think this is how I'm reading this, if I'm reading it correctly. So it is the, the Philistines, Israel's neighbors to the southeast, who with the uh, Phoenicians, Tyre and Sidon, they're the ones that sold God's people into slavery to the Greeks. And that, by the way, is a practice that the Greeks had been involved in since the 9th century B.C. And so... Uh, to borrow a phrase from more recent history, this seems to have been the, quote, final solution that the Philistines and the Phoenicians had come up with for their Jewish neighbors. And both Amos in 1 verse 6, also verse 9, and Obadiah in verse 15, they both reference the human trafficking practices of these people groups. Um, the only difference being uh, they both mention Edom as the buyers in their case. But uh, again, pinpointing the win of this, pinpointing this precisely historically is difficult. Um, nevertheless, uh, all the pieces are here to know with confidence that this awful history did happen. So my take and you say? Yeah, so I mean human trafficking definitely happened. Uh But as far as when the Jews were sold to the Greeks as slaves, uh, my research turned up a different date, and that's if we're wanting, again, to pinpoint this in history. Uh, Slave trading with the Greeks had only flourished since the 5th century BC, so I'd be interested to swap resources with you to see where you found the 9th century BC. But what we see here sounds a lot like what happened during the Jewish persecution dished out by Antiochus Epiphanes, but that doesn't really happen until the early 2nd century BC. So, again, we don't really know for sure when these things happened. Um, 
if we're looking for a historical pinpoint. And yet, I find it hard to imagine that this happened before Babylonian exile. And, I mean, isn't that supposed to be the setting of the book? But actually, from my perspective, that's not the setting of the book. And it's the verses like these in chapter 3 that make me believe more and more what I already said at the beginning of this series, and that's I take a post-exilic date. This was written after exile. Um, so the resource that I used for this, Dwayne A. Garrett in the New American Commentary on Hosea Joel, Hosea and Joel, He's got a paragraph on this verse, and he says that the history of Greek slave trading tends to support a 7th century date for the book. J.L. Crenshaw notes that Greeks made extensive use of slaves on their ships, farms, vineyards, and in factories in the period from the 8th to 6th centuries. Greek is, And he goes on. There's, okay. there's several resources that he pulls from. So, so I'm pulling from um, Joel commentary by uh, the Hermeniah commentary series. Uh, this was part was written by Hans Walter Wolf uh, from 1977. And mine says as the uh, setting for Joel, um, let me see, four, two, three, Live research here on swordplay today. (laughs) (laughs) Live research here. Um, Here it is. It says that it is... It's possible to demonstrate means of the description of the coastland found. Okay. The Phoenicians and the Philistines constituted a political community in later Persian times, around the middle of the 4th century. Um, And it says the uh, slave trade with Greece had flourished since the 5th century B.C. Uh, But it was especially in the 4th century that Phoenicia was subject to strong Greek influence. And... uh, it does say, it is true that trade with the Greeks is attested for Ture in older times as well, but in the earlier period, a close political association of Ture and Sidon with the Philistine cities cannot be demonstrated. So that's that's the point. So your source says Greek slave trading did happen in the 9th, 8th century, and that's true uh, between Ture and the Greeks, but you don't have this close association between the Phoenicians and the Philistines until the 5th and 4th centuries. And so if you're going to have the Phoenicians and the Philistines teaming up to sell slaves of Israelites to the Greeks, you're not going to find that historically happening until the 5th and 4th century. So that's that's the difference. Glad we fleshed that out. <laughs> Hermeneia. They don't even believe the Bible. <laughs> uh, that's not true. But uh, <laughs> It's a joke. Gracious. <laughs> ah! <laughs> Okay, so where are we at now? Are we on verse 7 and 8? Yep. Okay. Um, Nick, when do you think the Jews sold their enemies then to the Sabians, since that's what God says they'll do? Once again, there's speculation that abounds as to when this took place. Chisholm argues for a gradual realization of this prophecy historically. 
in which case the conquests of Alexander the Great in the 4th century BC could be the target date for fulfillment of this prophecy. However, and I mentioned Stuart uh, in his commentary, the New American Commentary, he argues for a rhetorical rather than a literal fulfillment of this prophecy. Bottom line is, for me, God promises to judge these nations which have oppressed his people, and we have no reason to doubt that God kept his promise just as he said. Kind of like Liam Neeson in Taken, right? I will find you. I will kill you. All right. Good God luck. God is going. That's right. <laughs> God is going to do it. So, and uh, you say? Yeah. So this never really happens. <laughs> it just never does. I'm sorry. Jews never sell Phoenicians and Philistines to the Sabians. Ever. Like, it just, it doesn't. It doesn't happen. So again, I don't think these verses have a whole lot of evidence to place within actual historical events. And I think the language used here is uh, it's being veiled through the naming of these classical enemies of God in order to point towards something else, the day of resurrection, the day of judgment that will take place at the return of Christ when all the gods of the nations and those within the nations who refuse to come into God's kingdom will be judged and destroyed. So continuing the two trajectories. (laughs) Well, Nick, what do you think then about verses 9 through 11? Because it says um, Yahweh wants to arouse the nations and and for them to come up and fight him down in the valley. So why? Why does Yahweh want the nations to come fight him? He's doing his best Michael Buffer impersonation, right? Let's get ready to rumble. All right. Um, It's time for war. And just as there was... A call earlier in Joel, uh, chapters one, chapter 1, verse 14, chapter 2, verse 15, there was a call to consecrate a fast. Now it's time to consecrate a war, and since Yahweh is involved in it, it is a just war. And so this is essentially Yahweh saying, hey, come at me, bro. Let's do this. Everything about this verse, by the way, is intended to be ironic. It recalls Psalm 2 how the nations, they gather for war against Yahweh, against his anointed. He only laughs at them in derision. He's like, what do you guys, and it's because there's really no contest. These armies of the nations, they're no match for Yahweh. And in fact, they are gathering for their doom. They are gathering for their judgment. And you say? Well, to me, it sounds a lot like a final battle between all the forces of darkness and God and the forces of light. And God is saying, come, launch your best attack, all of you together at the same time, and let's see what happens. And they do. And it's going to be the end of the world. (laughs) So that's getting eschatological up in here. Hmm. So Nick, from your perspective then, verse 11, who are the mighty ones that fight for Yahweh? So translational variants abound here. The Septuagint reads something along the lines of let the gentle person become a fighter. Uh, The Latin Vulgate has this as warriors, has these warriors. They are from the enemy nations that Yahweh is going to scatter. And so in order for this to be Yahweh's warriors, the Hebrew Masoretic text reading must be retained. Um, And if that's the case, then Yahweh of hosts is bringing his angelic army to the war. It's like uh, 
best illustration I can come up with is like Superman showing up to fight an unarmed Lex Luthor with the whole Justice League. All right, it's just <laughs> it's overkill. And um, but that's that's the nature of of the battle when you try and fight against Yahweh. You're it's a losing battle. I'm sure Lex didn't say, see it that way. <laughs> <laughs> he probably thought he had something up his sleeve. That's and now right. I resurrect Doomsday. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if we go with the Dead Sea Scrolls, then in verse 8, we actually already have the term Yahweh of hosts introduced. So anytime you're going to bring in Yahweh of hosts into the equation, then you're talking about uh, God and his host of angelic armies. The mighty ones of Yahweh here in verse 11, they are being brought down. And so that sounds like an angelic army descending from the sky. Again, I think it's the end of the world. Uh, it sounds a lot like Jude, chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, that describes the same kind of uh, angelic army coming down in judgment against all of the ungodly. Oh, wait, Jude is quoting the book of Enoch. What? Uh, don't worry. If that makes you uncomfortable, uh, Paul paints the same picture of an entourage of avenging angel and angelic uh, uh, avengers for us in second thessalonians chapter one verses seven through ten um so i went i went dc you went marvel with the avengers that's right, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> a fork in the road nick and you made your choice <laughs> yeah civil war <laughs> so verse 12 uh what do you think it means, Nick, for the nations to be aroused or to awakened? Yeah, stir themselves up and all that jazz. It's the same word that's used back in verses uh, 7 and 9. It means here to get the troops marching, right? Battle formations, company march. That's, that's right. March. March right into your own judgment. You lose. All right. <laughs> Um, and so that's uh, that's my take. What do you think? I actually think this is the most um, interesting verse in the whole section because the word aroused or awaken, you're right, it's used back in uh, verse 7 as well. I didn't catch verse 9, but uh, you're probably right. It's used in verse 12 to speak of the nations, but in verse 7, it's used concerning God's people who are dispersed among the nations. Now, the underlying Greek from the Septuagint is exegeto, and that, by the way, is the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, concerning Christ's resurrection and also our own resurrection. So here's, here's why I think this is interesting. Will there be some sort of big, epic battle at the resurrection? And to me, these verses certainly make it sound that way. But verse, <laughs> verse 12 also has another interesting part here. It says that Yahweh is both sitting in judgment, but then he's also calling for battle at the same time. So how is Yahweh doing both? Is he going to battle or is he going to judge? What's going on here? Verse 12. Yeah, so again, this is, uh, this is how easy it is for King Yahweh. He doesn't even have to get out of his chair to fight these guys. All right, he... Just as it was easy for him to create everything, Jeremiah 32, verse 17, nothing is too hard for you. So judgment on the gathering nations. This is, this is handle my light work, right? This is business as usual for Yahweh, um, and it is not hard for him to do. Uh, what do you think? 
I think perhaps the battle being portrayed here is part of the judgment process. In other words, let these nations choose once and for all which side they will fight on, and let's see who the winner will be. The result of the battle is the judgment, and so I think they're being conflated on purpose. That's my take anyway. Verse 13, Nick, why do you think this battle language then is described as harvesting and wine pressing? What does harvesting and wine pressing have to do with the nations and their wickedness? Uh, So we talked about this uh, prophetic figure a couple of weeks ago where every nation has a cup into which they are pouring their sins. When the cup is full, that's when Yahweh makes the nations drink that cup to the dregs and they stagger around in their drunken stupor and that's when God will just whammo, bring judgment upon them. And so here and elsewhere, for example, Isaiah 63, verse 1 and following, the figure is modified just slightly, though I I do believe it's related. It pictures the nations, uh, the enemies of Yahweh, themselves are now in the wine press of divine fury, and they are being trampled underfoot by Yahweh, and presumably uh, his angels, since the verbs here are plural. Uh, that's who's who's doing the treading, is there's a group of them. Uh, by the way, we have a song, Battle Hymn of the Republic, about how he's trampling out the grapes of wrath under his feet, something like that. And so this is the harvest of God's judgment upon these nations, upon his enemies. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I think... Um I agree. That's judgment language. Uh, the language of harvest, especially, uh, you did a good job pointing out the wine pressing part. The harvest language reminds me of the parable of the tares and the wheat. That's in Matthew 13, uh, verse 24. He says, The kingdom of heaven is compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed tares among the wheat, and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, do you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slave said, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I'll say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn." You know, later, Jesus explains what that parable means. He says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of the evil one. The enemy sowed them, uh, who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are angels. You mentioned angels as well, Nick. Um, So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be. At the end of the age, the Son of Man will send forth his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. I think that parable and the explanation is exactly what we see going on here in Joel chapter 3. We're talking about the end of time and the final battle and the undoing of wickedness forever. 
That's my thoughts. I know I just read a bunch from Matthew. It's Matthew 13, again, 24 through 30 and 36 through 43. Um, Verse 14 then, Nick. It says that the day of Yahweh is near in the valley of decision or justice. How exactly is the day of Yahweh near? Yeah, so if you're looking at the Septuagint, sounds have sounded forth. Uh, My English standard says multitudes and multitudes. It's so near. The idea here is it's so near you can already hear the sounds of battle. It's near in the sense of being upon them already. Another, it's just a, another assurance of the surety of divine judgment upon the oppressors. Now, what do you think? I think that's right. It's not near to Joel's audience. It's only near once you see that everyone is in the valley ready for the final battle. Like you said, you hear the sounds of battle. And, and it makes me wonder, too, the day of Yahweh is near, um, and yet if all these nations are being judged one at a time throughout the scope of history is that near what do you think about that timing just quick thoughts there um so and i think did we already cover it the day no i think it's later the day right what day are we talking about it's the day of yahweh and for some, that day is a day of salvation. For others, it's a day of judgment. And in terms of the restoration and all that, um, the nearness of that, yeah, we're 70 years off. In terms of the judgment for these nations, it's still near because um, it's going to happen, right? I mean, that's that's the assurance here for the original audience is, I'm going to take care of them. And... Um, some of it may be in their lifetime. Uh, I think later on we have another question about the timing of one of these things. Um, uh, like with Egypt, um, the, the, there's going to be some stuff that happens there. We'll talk about it when we get there. That happens even even while the, the, the chains are still cold on the skin of the captives of Israel or Judah. Um, God's going to do something through the Babylonians on the Egyptians and is doing something. So, um, yeah, so nearness, It, I think the nearness then, and I, I guess I said this in my answer, it's the assurance that it's going to happen. It's it's right on the threshold for these, for these people. Um, you don't have to worry about it. God's going to take care of it. Gotcha. So verse 15 we also see that this language about the sun and the moon and the stars coming up again. And why do you think that is? They already mentioned that before in chapter 2 a couple times. Why is the sun, moon, and stars being mentioned again? As in previous episodes, so now I say again, this is highly figurative prophetic language that's intended to communicate this is the end of the world as they know it for these nations. The picture of the created order coming undone, cosmic luminaries, their functions being reversed or refusing to function, it all communicates that these nations, for them, their fortunes are being reversed. They are coming undone, as it were. And again, it's the end of the world for them as they know it. And you say? I think that because this is highly figurative prophetic language, um, that's another signal to not be looking for these things as um, historically pinpointed in time, but rather for the uh, understanding of the symbols 
within the community and time and place of the people who wrote these letters and the people who received these letters. You know, the sun, moon, and stars, they're stock symbols for talking about the gods of the nations. And therefore, the cosmic powers of darkness must be dealt with. And they will, in finality, on this great and awesome day of the Lord. The stars were seemingly removed back in chapter 2, verse 31, at the pouring out of the Spirit. And I believe that, as I said then, was pointing towards the disarming of the gods of the nations and their right to rule, accomplished through the work of Jesus at the cross. The sun will be darkened, the moon will turn to blood, is what it says. Uh, By the way, the moon does turn to blood in Revelation 6 at the breaking of the sixth seal. I forgot to mention that last week, so just kind of covering my tracks there. And now in chapter 3, though, the stars are back. They're back along with the sun and the moon in Joel chapter 3, verse 15. And I think that's signaling that all of these powers, again, will be gathered back together in a single uh, moment of battle in which there will be this great victory of God and his people over all darkness and evil for all time. Just these these stars, they show back up just in time for <laughs> they, the elemental spirits, to be thrown into the fire. Second Peter chapter three. So um, we get to more language here then that we have to sort of unpack. And the question becomes: Okay, God says He dwells in Zion. He dwells and roars from Jerusalem. Does God still dwell on Zion and in Jerusalem? This is verse sixteen and twenty one. Yeah, so there is kind of a shift in the scene here from the Valley of Jehoshaphat to the mountain of Yahweh, to Zion and Jerusalem. And certainly with his people coming back to the land after exile, the Lord was with them. He was a refuge to them. Uh, Haggai 2, uh, about verse 5, I guess, my spirit is in the midst of them and all that. So yeah, God, he was He was still with them as they came back. Of course, and here's a bit for us, right? The with the coming of Christ came a new, the new Jerusalem, the church, and just as there was no salvation outside of Zion under the Old Testament, so there is no salvation outside of Zion under the New Testament. And in a single verse, in fact, Hebrews 12 and verse 22, the church is equated with both Zion and the heavenly Jerusalem. So. Uh, my take, what do you think? Yeah, I think Hebrews twelve twenty two is right. Um, this does point to the church. We, as the church, are already dwelling on Mount Zion. We are the new and heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, the church did not replace Israel, by the way. The church is the true Israel. They are attached to the faithful root of Israelite uh, patriarchs and Israelites who accepted Jesus as the Christ in the first century AD. And so, yeah, I think God does dwell. He did dwell. He will continue to dwell on Zion and in Jerusalem, but we're not talking about a geographical place. We're talking about a cosmic place. And that is the same cosmic place which we dwell as those in Christ Jesus. So verse 17 then, uh, this makes a difference for this question. Did foreigners ever again pass through Jerusalem? Because this is, uh, you know, depending on who you think, again, the audience is, the time of the letter, the time the audience would be looking for in this passage, did foreigners ever pass again through Jerusalem? So I don't think this is, you know, Joel issuing some kind of a travel ban here on Jerusalem, especially in light of other texts in uh, prophetic literature 
which have Gentiles, families of the earth, coming up to the mountain of the Lord to offer worship. Think of, uh, I think it's Joel 14, or not Joel 14, Zechariah 14, uh, where you see that kind of picture. Rather, it's in, this is intended to communicate that Zion is sacred territory, and therefore there's no unclean person there. Uh, and you say? So let's look at this for a second. After exile, they come back from Babylon. They were in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. The Jews come back. Even after exile, Jerusalem is riddled with problems from foreigners. I mean, Antiochus Epiphanes, he kills thousands. He sells thousands. He raids and defiles the temple. And you know, Rome does the same thing in AD 70. And so this is not and cannot be speaking of physical, earthly Jerusalem. But the church, however, never has a foreigner within because entrance is contingent upon obedience to Christ Jesus. It's important to remember this verse is on the heels of this eschatological battle. It's the result of that battle, the day of judgment. All that will be left after the day of judgment is God's kingdom. There are no more nations after that. None. They're gone forever. That's the day I'm looking forward to. <laughs> uh, verse 18 then, um, again, tied together. In what day does Joel refer to? Verse 18. Yeah, that's what I referenced earlier, uh, Day of Yahweh. It's a day of judgment for some. It's a day of salvation for others. Yeah. My take, I don't think it's a day following any judgment uh, in temporality, judgment on a nation. I think it's the day following the judgment on all nations, the final battle, and it's eschatological. Again, I'm looking forward to that day from my perspective. Verse 18, uh, we have this picture then of mountains and hills dripping with sweet wine and milk. Nick, uh, why would why would mountains and hills do that? So you, this is a picture of a reversal of fortunes for God's people. The locusts of chapter 1, they had wiped everything out. There had been famine in the land. And now there's abundance once again. As Yahweh returns his people back to his land, even to his house, uh, he is restoring life to them. Uh, and you think? Well, here's something that uh, maybe something, maybe nothing. But when it says sweet wine, uh, the word in the original languages uh, are somewhat, somewhat ambiguous. It generally just means sweetness. And so it gets translated as sweet wine, but uh, it just means sweetness. I take this to be a reference to our new promised land flowing with milk and honey. Remember that when it talks about the promised land for the Israelites, the land flowing with milk and honey? That's kind of the language we see here for the mountain of God where all the people will dwell with him. Um, it's flowing with milk and honey. And that communicates that we are the new humanity. We are the new creation in Christ Jesus. And we will be put in a new garden, a fertile and rich land flowing with milk and honey. So again, it's eschatological. It's looking forward to the uh, new heavens and new earth, new humanity, new Eden. So verse 18 then, Nick, um, it has a picture of water flowing out of the house of Yahweh. Why would water flow out of the house of Yahweh? So you can compare this to Ezekiel 47, verses 1 through 12, which picture, uh, pictures a similar thing, um, water coming from the temple 
flowing from the temple. Um, and as discussed previously, previous episode, water is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Remember, he's poured out at the end of Joel chapter 2 there. And so, as the returning exiles give God what God wants, his spirit, his presence abides with them. And I mentioned Haggai 2 verse 5 earlier. So certainly this also anticipates um, the spirit flowing forth from the true temple, which is Christ. Um, it can it can picture uh, him blessing every believer as well as every Christian being a conduit through which the the water of life flows through to others and is a blessing to them. So uh, it certainly in, uh, prefigures some things that are to come. Uh, but uh, that's my take. What do you think? So it prefigures things to come, but it's not meaningful to Joel's audience then and there at their time. Uh, no, I think it, it does um, because of the Haggai 2 verse 5 thing. My spirit abides with you oh. is what he says after the exile. So there's significance there for when the Jews come back to Zion. I see. So you're still connecting then some of this for the return, returning captives and some of it for their future. I think I mentioned that at the beginning. I would try to weave some of the application for us today. Gotcha. Um, so the water flowing out of the house of Yahweh, <clears throat> that is connected to the mountains and hills dripping with um, milk and honey or sweetness. Again, I think that we're going to be in a place described as a well-watered garden. And you know what else was described as a well-watered garden? The Garden of Eden. It was surrounded by four rivers. And uh, I do think you're right, Nick, about the spirit. Um, And that water, just like we saw being poured out, the spirit draws in that imagery of God pouring out the water from the heavens. And I think this still ties back together with the garden, though, because just as God breathed into Adam, so too we have the spirit breathed into us. And that's what happens when we become Christians. God gives us the gift of the Spirit. And we are eventually going to go home. This is not our home, but we're going to go home. We've been preparing for that home by making disciples. And Jesus has prepared us to dwell in that home by giving us his Spirit, connecting us to himself, the source of living water. So again, I'm sticking with the eschatological trajectory. Um, This water that comes out here then, interesting in verse 18, what do we have here? Uh, the end of the verse talks about the Valley of Shittim or Valley of Acacias, if you're reading from the uh, Septuagint. Uh, talk to us about that valley, Alex. Yeah, just a, what is yeah, that? a quick word. Shittim is sometimes rendered as Acacias. In the Septuagint, it reads torrents or the reed, torrents of the reeds. Um, it's thought that since Acacia is a desert tree, that the valley being watered is particularly lacking in water. In other words, the deserts will become watered and fertile, and there's not going to be a dry place left on earth. That is, from my perspective, the new earth. Um, Nick, verse 19, when did Egypt and Edom shed righteous blood? As before, again, pinpointing this precisely historically is difficult, perhaps uh, impossible, at least right now it is. Um, However, 
Obadiah. He did condemn Edom for their violence against the fleeing Jewish refugees, Obadiah 10. So I think, uh, again, as I mentioned before, while we may not be able to pinpoint this precisely, this did happen. Um, uh, Egypt and Edom are guilty of this. And you say? Yeah, again, we're not going to pinpoint it historically because it didn't happen. They didn't team up together to shed righteous blood. These are classic enemies of God. Edom, Egypt, the other cities and nations listed before. They represent all the forces of darkness that will be defeated for the blood of the martyrs. It's not historically situated because we are in the territory of apocalyptic literature here in Joel 3. And in apocalyptic literature, as I said at the beginning, that is where symbols and ciphers reign supreme. They are the normative for interpretation. So again, Egypt, Edom, symbolic of God's enemies that will be judged via all powers of darkness at the end of time. So verse 20, Nick, do you think Judah and Jerusalem were were inhabited forever? So there's a couple of options here, a couple of views that could be put forward. One is uh, there's intended to be a contrast here, whereas Egypt and Edom, they're going out of business, they're disappearing from the world stage, and yet the Jewish nation, they would continue enduring even to today, uh, some might say. Uh, Another option would be that the inhabiting is intended to be understood as Yahweh living amongst his people over against uh, Egypt and Edom, Uh, and he did. Uh, uh, Haggai talks about that, as I mentioned. Uh, third option would be that this anticipates uh, the coming eternal Jerusalem, the church. Uh, so a few options there, and you say? I'm going to take your third option about the church, but uh, I don't think it's about the coming of the church. I think it's about the completion of the work of the church at the end of time. Remember, this is after the big battle between God and all the nations. This is after now uh, the God's people are dwelling on his mountain, flowing with milk and honey. Um, The church in the book of Joel already came back in chapter 2, verse 28, with the pouring out of the Spirit. We know that's the case because that's what Peter quotes as being fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. So for here at the end of the book, for Judah and Jerusalem to be inhabited forever, we know that historically uh, just does not happen. Um, again, Jerusalem completely burned down to the ground, destroyed and uninhabited for a while after 70 AD when Rome burns it to the ground. So this cannot be earthly Jerusalem. It is for sure the church. And uh, this is actually going to be what happens when the church completes her work. We will... So option four. <laughs> yeah, option three plus. <laughs> 3.2. So um, verse 21, we have the last verse here, last question. How and when, Nick, do you think Yahweh uh, avenged the blood of his people? So Joel is not the only prophet to promise divine judgment upon Edom and Egypt. Ezekiel is another one. You have stuff in Isaiah, Jeremiah as well. Uh, Ezekiel 25, verses 12 through 14, talks about Edom. Ezekiel 30, 
well, chapters 30, 31, 32, they all talk about Egypt. Uh, these are prophecies of disaster. They are prophecies of destruction upon these nations. In fact, in Ezekiel 30, verse 20 and following, we are told that Babylon would be the instrument through which divine judgment came upon Egypt, which is exactly what happened historically. After Pharaoh came to help Judah, when Nebuchadnezzar attacked in uh, 588, he was turned back to Egypt only to be met with civil war. And then uh, that's when Nebuchadnezzar came in and conquered Egypt very easily. So that great, great civilization would exist merely in the annals of history and as ruins. And so working from a pre-exilic date for Joel, uh, I believe Joel sees what Zeke saw. All right, He saw... Also what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 30, verses 1 through 14. He saw what Jeremiah saw in chapter 46 of Jeremiah. So Edom, Egypt, they're going the way of the dodo. They're going out of existence, and they did. And so prophecy, it's an amazing tool that demonstrates the veracity, the faithfulness of the Bible. And you say? Yeah, I think that uh, Yahweh will avenge the blood of his people. <clears throat> Uh, on the day of judgment, and that's what the whole chapter has been about, uh, this day of finality when all the nations will be judged. Uh, it happens after the Spirit is poured out, Joel 2.28. In other words, it happens after Acts chapter 2. Uh, this final day of judgment, it is warned about all through the book of Acts and the epistles. And even in the book of Revelation, we see in Chapter 6, when the fifth seal is broken, the martyrs under the altar in heaven ask, how much longer until you avenge us, until you avenge our blood that was shed on earth? And the answer is not until all the blood of the righteous has been spilled for the kingdom of God, and then comes judgment. Interestingly enough, when the sixth seal is broken, that's when we see the sun uh, and stars darkened and the moon turned to blood. And so I think that fifth seal is talking about all the Christian martyrs until the return of Christ. And then the sixth seal broken up, I think, is talking about that day of judgment that we see here in Joel chapter 3. It's eschatological in my perspective. It's a perspective which goes back to verse 1 in which you have to sort of choose the path which you're going to take for interpreting the rest of chapter 3. And that is the end of the book of Joel. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that was quite the exercise. <laughs> Any final thoughts, Nick? Uh, nope. Okay. No, I think we've, uh, we've upholstered the subject. It has been upholstered. So, Nick... It's time for a one-minute sermon. It sure is. <clears throat> oh, is it, do I go first? Uh, let me see. Last week, what song did you have to do last week? Oh, man, I don't remember. <laughs> you don't remember your epic one-minute sermon? Okay, yeah, this week you go first. Yeah, last week you preached on Smooth Criminal, Criminal by Michael Jackson. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> so this week you do go first. Um and I'm just making sure, yep, okay. Nick, today, your one-minute sermon 
is by a little band called Toto. No, I'm not talking about The <laughs> Wizard of Oz. I'm talking about a song called Africa. Oh, man. I miss the rains down in Africa. Gonna take some time to do this. Yeah, that's right. Bum, bum, bum. Africa. Here we go, Nick. That's right. One minute sermon on Africa. Go. Got to go to Acts chapter 8. Yes. Where the Ethiopian <laughs> eunuch, he's from Ethiopia, he's from Africa, he's an African man who's gone up to Jerusalem to worship. And on his way home, he meets a guy named Philip, and Philip hears him reading from the scroll of Isaiah. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asks. The Ethiopian eunuch says, how can I, unless someone teaches me? And Philip taught him Jesus from that passage. Look, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized is the next question of the Ethiopian. And the two of them go down. The eunuch is baptized. He is saved. And he takes the gospel with him back to Africa and establishes, uh, no doubt, the nucleus of the church there. Uh, And Christianity has had a long, rich history uh, in that particular country, probably because of those very first evangelistic efforts of an Ethiopian eunuch from Africa. Boom. One minute. Nice. <laughs> That's exactly what I was hoping you would preach on, too. That's <laughs> <laughs> the first thing came to mind. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't think of any other thing that would work. So, well done, sir. You honed in, you honed in on it. Hit the nail on the head. Africa. Very good. So, uh, yeah, my turn. Yeah, so... Here's one. I actually used uh, this uh, song title in a Bible class this last week, so I want to see what you do with it. <clears throat> so there is a um, a metal band called Falconer. Falconer, okay. Falconer, yeah. And they have a song that is entitled Carnival of Disgust. Carnival of Disgust. Carnival of Disgust. Um, I wish I could sing part of this, but um, I don't want to ruin my voice. Plus, the guy he he actually does like at the end of the song he does a like a long yodel, which is pretty awesome actually. <laughs> Even though it sounds ridiculous for a metal song, but <clears throat> guy's got a pretty awesome voice there. Anyway, Falconer, Carnival of Disgust. One minute on the clock, Alex, and go. You know, in Romans 1, it says that God has revealed um, himself from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. But uh, even though it's evident to the ungodly that God exists and has made himself evident, the unrighteous suppress that evidence. They suppress the righteousness of God revealed from heaven. And God, he says, he gives them over to the darkening of their minds, to the lust of their hearts, to degrading passions. And when God gives you over, it becomes a carnival of disgust. Is that the name of the song, Carnival of Disgust? Yeah, okay. It becomes a carnival of disgust in which people exchange uh, the women for their natural function over for that which is unnatural and likewise the men and they abandon that and they uh, worship that which is not God and they see fit not to acknowledge God any longer 
And so they are given over to a depraved mind. This is a point of um, no return that people are given over to because of their own choices. And they become filled with wickedness and greed and envy and murder and strife. You can see it all in Romans chapter 1. This is what happens when we leave God and we ignore his evidence. (laughs) Bravo, sir. I actually used that in... um Ephesians 1, or excuse me, Ephesians 2. Oh, right, right. <laughs> um, yeah, where he he essentially walked, Paul walks his audience through the carnival of disgust um, of their former lives before taking them to the, the good stuff. So Nice. There it is. One-minute sermons. We did it. You can do it, too. That's right. Go forth and prosper. That's right. Hey, in the meantime, you can go and check out the archives in the iTunes store, in the Google Play Music store, uh, and just search Swordplay in those respective places. You can download these episodes to your particular device. Leave a review. That'll help us get the word out about the podcast. You can share it on social media as well if you feel so inclined. That's right. And um, go ahead and send us any questions you might have at swordplaypodcast at gmail.com that's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear your thoughts your questions and um, also in store for next week we are going to share with you uh, tools for bible study two weeks is it two weeks from now yeah that two weeks from now we're going to share with you tools for bible study and so we're going to talk about, you know, okay, we had a little in-live research session today. Nick looked at his commentary pretty fast. I looked at my commentary, not as fast, but uh, <laughs> I still found it eventually. And uh, actually, Nick and I are using a Bible software program called Logos that helps us to uh, pinpoint these resources very quickly. And so what other resources do we use along with technology to help us prepare for these podcasts, to study the Bible, to go deeper into God's Word? We want to share that with you. We want to tell you how we study and what we study with. And I think that'll be helpful to our audience. Um, I think people can can find that very practical. So that's what we're going to do in two weeks. Next week, no episode, two weeks, Bible study tools. We'll see you then on another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.